the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to a conversation with local author Gilbert Gleason. He's written the book Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott. And if you're wondering who are Bert and Colleen Elliott, well, you'll find out shortly. It's an inspiring book, would make an excellent Christmas gift. It's um, inspiring and challenging and brought tears to my the whole range of emotion as I uh, read through it. Anyway, that's coming up later this hour in today's program. Well, the Biden administration today announced that they're tightening travel rules to and within the U.S., requiring all inbound international passengers to test for COVID within 24 hours of departure. It also expands the mask requirement on all domestic flights and public transportation through March of next year. The changes are part of a broader plan to bolster an arsenal of tools in the nation's fight against the the virus as the world enters its third year of the pandemic. Now, this before we actually know if this new variant is uh, to be feared or if it's a milder version. So it's a bit premature, but the administration is tightening travel rules to and within the U.S. The changes were announced today as part of that to plan to bolster the arsenal of tools. And the plan's also the latest move by the administration to stem the spread of the new highly mutated Omicron variant of the coronavirus, which was first reported to the World Health Organization, rather by the uh, South Africa by South Africa about a week ago. At least 23 countries have identified uh, cases so far, two in the United States. The U.S. joined the, that list after confirming the first case in North, Car- North uh, California and another uh, just today. Well, the Supreme Court heard arguments yesterday in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, a case that uh, challenges the constitutionality of Mississippi's Gestational Age Act, as it's uh, named. The law bans most abortions after 15 weeks gestation. Now, the time allotted for each side was extended so that newly appointed U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelonger uh, could participate and include the Biden administration's opposition to the laws protecting unborn children. Most of the time for uh, arguments uh, was spent on whether the court's decision in Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey should be overruled. Well, the viability of those um, precedents is on the on the line because the court is both um, in both decisions determined that any abortion ban prior to viability when the unborn child can potentially live outside the womb is unconstitutional. The Mississippi ban draws the line well before viability. That's that I'm not sure I would say it's established, but generally agreed upon, um, understood to be 24 weeks. A paper published recently described three possible outcomes. The court upholding the uh, Mississippi abortion ban by overruling uh, Roe and Casey. The justices reached the same result by narrowing or modifying rather than overruling those precedents. Or the court strikes down the Mississippi ban by affirming Roe and Casey. And while predicting the final result based on oral arguments can be pretty risky, both sides 
poured the cold water on the second option. They rejected as unworkable any half measures that would substitute something else for Roe and Casey, uh, the standard set there. In other words, they argued Roe and Casey must either stay or go. The court has established a two-step process for determining whether a precedent should be overruled. The first is whether that precedent was wrongly decided. On that, Mississippi Solicitor General Scott Stewart's opening words were that Roe and Casey haunt our country and has no foundation in the text, structure or history of the Constitution. Now, significantly, neither uh, Julie Reichelman, the attorney for the abortion clinic challenging the law, nor Prelogger uh, made much of an attempt to defend uh, either case on its merits. The second question is whether a wrongly decided precedent should be overruled. And the court has identified several factors or criterion rather to help answer that question. Justice Stephen Breyer, he argued that the court should be more unwilling to overrule what he called watershed precedents so that the public doesn't think the justices are simply responding to political pressure. He might have been implicitly conceding that Roe and Casey could not survive application of the court's traditional analysis. And as Chief Justice John Roberts observed, Breyer's position actually suggests that the more egregiously wrong a precedent is, the more the court should resist overruling it. Justice Brett Kavanaugh explained that some of the court's most significant decisions had themselves overruled precedents, citing an extensive list of decisions that included Miranda versus Arizona, Lawrence versus Texas, Obergfell versus Hodges. His citations also included Brown versus Board of Education, which effectively overruled the separate but equal principle established in Plessy versus Ferguson. So that was a significant part of the back and forth. Now, if the court had simply refused to reconsider its precedents, Kavanaugh said, this country would be a much different place. He added that if we think that the prior precedents are strongly wrong, why then doesn't the history of this court's practice with respect to those cases tell us that the right answer is actually a return to the position of neutrality and not stick to those precedents in the same way all the other cases didn't? Well, several justices asked whether legal or other circumstances have changed since Casey, which was decided in 1992. Justice Amy Coney Barrett, she noted that states now have safe haven laws that allow mothers to relinquish newborn babies to hospitals or other distinguished uh, safe havens without criminal prosecution uh, within a few days of delivery instead of abandoning them. Barrett suggested that by separating pregnancy from parenthood, safe haven laws may diminish what the Supreme Court in Roe called the detriment facing women of carrying an unwanted pregnancy to term. She also asked whether upholding the Mississippi abortion ban would necessarily raise questions about the validity of other Supreme Court precedents. Stewart responded that none of the precedents involving private or personal decisions involved the powerful termination of a human life. In fact, even Roe versus Wade itself acknowledged that the presence of the unborn child makes abortion inherently different from other privacy rights. Well, in perhaps the most shocking line of questioning, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, she tried to argue that it is impossible to know if an unborn child's reaction to physical stimuli shows that he or she feels pain. The justice uh, claimed that with about 40 percent of dead people who, if they touch their foot, the foot will recoil. Forty percent of dead people, she says. There are spontaneous acts by dead brain people. So I don't think that a response to by a fetus necessarily proves that there's a sensation of pain or that there's consciousness, end quote. 
Well, she might have been unaware of the current research on the subject, which shows that unborn children may indeed feel pain at as early as 12 weeks. The most important question in this case concerns the proper setting for all of these questions, debates, issues, values and arguments. Is it the legislature or the judiciary? Well, unless the Constitution clearly says otherwise, the answer is clear, at least from the pro-life position. The American people and their elected representatives have authority to wrestle with these matters and decide on the answers. When the Supreme Court uh, takes these uh, uh, questions away from the people without authorization from the Constitution, the court undermines its own credibility and legitimacy. Sotomayor asked a question about the current case that actually applies best to Roe and Casey. How can the Supreme Court survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just acts? Well, the answer is, how can the high court survive without overruling Roe and Casey decisions that divined um, a constitutional right to abortion very nearly out of thin air? The court has to correct its grave constitutional error and overrule Roe and Casey so that Americans can govern themselves on matters of abortion. That would be the default position if they were to overturn Roe versus Wade. Each state would have the freedom to decide for itself. My understanding is in the state of Oregon, where abortion was already made legal, we would simply revert to the status of uh, that question prior to the Supreme Court decision. Well, in other news, the Michigan school shooting suspect, Ethan Crumbly, has been charged with terrorism and murder. We'll tell you more about that when we return in just a few moments. Also looking forward to a conversation with uh, Gilbert Gleason, his book, Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Firearm in the Commission of a Felony. In other developments, Michigan's prosecutor says the U.S. is desensitized to school shootings after four students were killed there. The gun used in the Michigan school shooting was purchased by the suspect's father on Black Friday. And a New Jersey student has been charged for a threat against his high school just hours after the Michigan school shooting. Vice President Kamala Harris' top advisor, Simone Sanders, is resigning amid signs of disarray in the Veep's office. Simone Sanders, a senior advisor for Kamala Harris and her chief spokesperson, will depart at the end of the year in a sign of growing turmoil within the vice president's office. Sanders is the second top Harris aide to announce her departure in less than a month. Just two weeks ago, it emerged that her communications director had resigned. Harris has been plagued with poor approval ratings and questions from Republican critics about her competence. In other developments, the vice president says the new space policy will focus on climate change. Well, China and Russia are pretty excited about that. The Biden administration plans to extend the transportation mask requirement through mid-March. And the former D.C. mayor's spokesperson uh, has switched parties over the Biden presidency, voting for Governor-elect Youngkin. The Waukesha parade suspect's mother pointed a finger at the lack of mental health services after the deadly horror perpetrated by her son. Daryl Brooks' mother broke her silence on Wednesday in a letter to the media blaming the November 21st Waukesha, Wisconsin parade tragedy on a lack of mental health services for her son, according to a report. Brooks was living with his mom, Don Woods, 62, when authorities saw uh, say rather he plowed his Red Fort escape into the city's annual Christmas parade. The Waukesha parade suspect says he feels dehumanized and demoralized in his first jailhouse interview. Brooks' ex-girlfriend says she's devastated by his monstrous act. 
and the obituary of one of Waukesha's uh, Waukesha's uh, parade victims, a Milwaukee dancing granny, says she died doing what she loved. A Utah police officer is fighting for his life while another is wounded in a shootout. An Alabama shooting left a retired deputy and suspect dead. Two Georgia deputies were shot outside Atlanta. The suspect is dead in that shootout. A professor went viral for her story about a rental car nightmare on Thanksgiving. And suspects have been arrested in the homicide of a Florida teen found dead after a bike ride. LeBron James posted a rather cryptic tweet while sidelined due to the league's COVID protocols. It's not entirely clear what his status is, but they do say he's asymptomatic. Major League Baseball owners have locked players out starting the sport's first work stoppage in 26 years. Disney has named Susan Arnold to succeed Bob Iger as board chair. And Square Inc., the financial services company co-founded and led by former Twitter Inc. chief Jack Dorsey, is changing its corporate name to Block Inc., Biden's FCC nominee is facing a grilling from the Senate while being asked about past comments. Gigi Son, who was an FCC official during the Obama administration, was nominated by the president in late October. Her nomination has caused concern among Republican lawmakers because of her past comments toward conservative media, as well as an openness to revamping the fairness doctrine. Businesses have asked the Wisconsin Supreme Court to halt the governor from outing companies with covid positive staff. And donations to Clinton's nonprofit have plunged in 2020. Home Depot's founder makes a big move in the Missouri Senate race. Well, pro-lifers saw hope in the first day of the Dobbs um, hearings before the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Women's Tennis Association suspended tournaments in China. Unfortunately, the leadership in China has not addressed this very serious issue in any credible way. WTA chairman and CEO Steve Simon wrote in a statement distributed by the tour. Uh, while we now know where Peg Peng is, I have serious doubts that she is free, safe, and not subject to censorship, coercion, and intimidation. The NBA might want to take a playbook from this women's sports organization. Stacey Abrams announced she's running for governor of Georgia again, although many have joked she's running for re-election since she claims she won the first time. She lost to the current governor, Brian Kemp, in 2018. After Jesse Smollett's trial, uh, two Nigerian brothers testified against him. The man Jesse Smollett uh, allegedly paid to help him stage a hate crime took the stand in the actor's criminal trial on Wednesday, describing how he took part in the hoax because he thought the Empire star could help push his own acting career. Brothers Ola and Bola Asunaro uh, told police that Smollett hired them to beat him because he felt producers of the show um, he starred on Empire, didn't go and uh, didn't do enough to protect him after he received a racist and homophobic letter on set. The brothers also told police that Smollett sent himself the letter for attention, according to police sources. President Biden uh, repeated a debunked claim that he drove a tractor trailer. He said it again on Tuesday. He claimed uh, his claim was debunked earlier this year after the president said at a Mack truck facility in Pennsylvania that he used to drive an 18 wheeler. When asked at the time if the president had ever driven such a truck, a White House spokesperson pointed to December of 1973, an article from the Wilmington Evening Journal that showed Biden rode in an 18 wheeler on a 536 mile haul to Ohio. Not quite the same as driving one. Well, Kraft Peanut Butter is promoting Trans Awareness Week and offers a booklet to lecture you about pronouns. A U.K. woman won her case against a doctor claiming she should not have been born. 
The 20-year-old's wrongful conception claims saw her take uh, Dr. Philip Mitchell to court over his failure to advise her mother to take vital supplements before getting pregnant. She alleged that to had the medic told her mom, Caroline, that she needed to take folic acid to minimize the risk of spina bifida affecting her baby, she would have put off conception. This, in turn, would have meant Evie would never have been born. In the Supreme Court, Dobbs versus Jackson, the high court to heard arguments in the biggest abortion case since Roe. A tale of two women, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, a mother of seven and an adoptee, brings up adoption laws, while Justice Sonia Sotomayor vilely compares unborn babies to brain-dead people reacting to stimuli. Speaking of vile, pro-abortionists popped abortion pills during their Supreme Court demonstration, and Susan B. Anthony List, president, says there is a realistic hope Roe will be overturned. The Biden administration is considering mandatory quarantine for Americans returning from abroad and White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki on her boss's promise to shut down the virus. We need the American people to do more. Nearly 10,000 service members requested religious waiver for the covid vaccine. And the Pentagon chief says guardsmen who uh, refuse uh, vaccination cannot train. The Del Rio sector is encountering migrants from 106 different countries. No testing, no quarantine, no concern. Better late than never, the U.S. and Mexico reach a deal to restart Trump's productive remain in Mexico policy. There are 600,000 cyber job openings as a result of the U.S. is facing an urgent anti-hacker crisis. And Russia booted two U.S. embassy staffers amid a diplomatic row and Ukraine tension. And lawmakers reached a deal on a stopgap spending bill, but hurdles remain. Republican rebels forced Chuck Schumer to choose between a shutdown and Biden's vaccine mandate. The so-called QAnon shaman has filed for an appeal of his sentence for the Capitol riot. Alec Baldwin says he did not pull the trigger in the fatal rust shooting incident. Authorities should perhaps explore a grassy knoll and a women's tennis association. Well, they've set the uh, the bar quite high for the NBA. On this day in history, 1823, President James Monroe outlines his doctrine opposing European expansion in the Western Hemisphere. 1859, militant abolitionist John Brown is hanged for his raid on Harper's Ferry the previous October. 1927, Ford Motor Company unveils its Model A automobile that replaces the Model T. 1939, New York Municipal Airport LaGuardia Field, later LaGuardia Airport, goes into operation as an airliner from uh, Chicago, lands at one minute past midnight. 1942, on this day in history, an artificially created self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction is demonstrated for the first time at the University of Chicago. 1954, the U.S. Senate passes 67 to 22, a resolution condemning Joseph McCarthy, saying he had acted contrary to senatorial ethics and tended to bring the Senate into dishonor and disrepute. 1957, the shipping port atomic power station in Pennsylvania, the first full-scale commercial nuclear facility in the U.S., begins operation. It would cease operating in 1982. And the newly created Environmental Protection Agency opens its doors in 1970, rather, under its first director, William D. Ruckels. And finally... 2017, ABC News suspends investigative reporter Brian Ross for four weeks without pay for an enormous, um, erroneous story, rather, about President Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to have a conversation with Gilbert Gleason, author of Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott. Two people you really should get to know.
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm looking forward to a conversation with Gilbert Gleason. He is the author of Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott. 20th century martyr Jim Elliott is familiar to most of us, um, but his brother, perhaps less so. The book is about um, Bert Elliott, Jim's brother, who is also a missionary. Uh, and uh, Gilbert Gleason um, is a nephew by marriage of Bert and Colleen Elliott. Uh, he served as their pastor for 30 years. He benefited personally from their friendship, support, mentoring, and he in turn served and supported them, encouraging and assisting on the home front and through hands-on experience during his several visits to the ministry and the front lines in Peru, where they served for many, many years. He's married to Sue. They live here in Portland, have three married children and four grandchildren. He joins us to talk about his amazing book, which, by the way, uh, I would recommend as a great Christmas gift with a forward by Randy Alcorn, Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott. Thank you so much for joining us. It's good to, good to talk to you, Georgine. Thank you. Well, this um, conversation is a long time coming. I've intended to have you on for a, a long period of time, so I'm really delighted to have you on today. Let's begin by talking a bit about your relationship with, with Uncle Bert and Aunt Colleen Nate. Yes, Excuse me, so Elliot. I, yes, so I married their their niece Sue Elliot, who's now Sue Gleason, and um, have enjoyed a relationship with them, a friendship with them for forty plus years, and served as their pastor for the last thirty two years of their life. And it was it was a joy to know them, to be there with, to be with them with family times, and and just to enjoy their mentorship and their love, and frankly their support. I really felt like. Like, especially Aunt Colleen was always in my corner when I needed her, and, and Uncle Bert was always an enthusiast and a, and a support and an and encouragement to me through the years. And so and it's been a delight to be a part of, the, of their lives. You know, most of us are familiar with Brother Jim Elliott, uh, who, along with uh, three other missionaries, lost his life in Ecuador. It's a familiar story to most followers of Jesus who've been around for a while. Bert is his brother. He's lesser known but has a tremendous testimony along with his wife, uh, Colleen. Much of the book is the um, is the retelling of their story. But in their own words, uh, Colleen was an avid letter writer. And so in addition to your telling the story, we have an opportunity to hear their voice as well. So when I start, first started writing, I wrote a chapter and my wife read it. And she said, <clears throat> she said, you've missed it. You need to let them tell their own story. And so, because she grew up listening to, especially Aunt Colleen's letters, sometimes Uncle Bert's, but mainly Aunt Colleen's letters through the years, and she's a vivid writer, and mm-hmm. and so I took as much as I could, I let them write their own story, and um, and it, it's fascinating that the pictures they give, when she wrote, she wrote home about once a month, as often missionaries do, and they were not just, how, how are you, I'm fine, they were vivid and just lengthy discussions about what was going on and the people and experiences. And, and um, so, so indeed they do tell their own stories much as I was able to let them. You know, I was just delighted to have the opportunity to get to know them in that way. In addition to your writing, painting a vivid picture of this remarkable couple whose names we probably wouldn't have known had you not drawn attention uh, to them in this way. And I know that they were widely known in certain circles, but these are real pillars of the faith. 
that I think we all need to get to know. Well, let's begin by um, giving you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about the childhood home of the Elliots. So they grew up in, they, they together grew up on the, in East Portland. Um, Bert's home is on the east side of, of Mount Tabor, down on the lower side of Mount Tabor. Graduated from Benson High School. Colleen went to Jefferson High School. They met at, at church. At the time, it was called Grace and Truth Chapel. Today, it's called Grace Bible Fellowship. And that's where they met as, as early teenagers, as young people, and knew each other, and, and then slowly began to fall in love with, with one another. They were, even as young people, serious about their faith. They were taught well in the church. Their homes reflected a, a Christian worldview. So they had, both of them had really strong foundations. I, I noted that Bert had to make a decision about the course of his life early on. Business versus ministry, military service versus teaching the scriptures. Talk a little bit about the early decisions that each of them made that resulted in this remarkable missionary ministry they were involved in for 75% of their lives. So, Bert, during World War II, Bert and his older brother Bob, who's Sue's father, um, were conscientious objectors during World War II, and so they served uh, first in Northern California, then back in in Maryland, um, doing things that the conscientious objectors do it, did, and that that shaped his his early life and built some good friendships. And then, as they as they got ready, and even in that time, there there were hints of a seriousness on Bert's part mm-hmm. to follow the Lord in um, in ministry, and he he saw just an aside. He saw the the potential in his younger brother Jim, and he said he said I'll stay home and support you if you'll um, go into ministry for for God. But uh, the Lord opened the doors for Bert himself to go, and so even the, one of the things that's interesting to me is in their courtship. They were separated about half the time that they're what we'd call their dating relationship. Um, Colleen was down at Biola doing the, the School of Missionary Medicine course down at Biola. Bert was was um, doing um, preparation, mentoring under his father, preaching under his father's mentorship, and then he went for a year at Multnomah. But here, even in that time, the focus was on not just, you know, starry-eyed, gleamy, you know, we love each other. Mm-hmm. It was on how can God use us together for service. And there's even a letter where where Bert writes to, to Colleen and says, um, are we serious about ministry? Are we serious about going to prove that's where God calls us? If I were to go on my own, are you serious enough that you would follow with me and follow after me and do that? And if you're not, should we be getting married? It was those kind of questions that that where they they saw their relationship not just as you know the fulfillment of a love for each other, but but a, more how can we together serve God better than we can separately? And they just were convinced of that. And so their whole mainly their whole their whole courtship was all in preparation for the ministry. So they got married in January of nineteen forty nine. And their honeymoon was a trip to Peru. They, <laughs> they ended up, their honeymoon cottage was sharing a, a, the living room of a missionary family that they were living with down there. And and um, their their gifts were all, in, their wedding gifts were all in view of what are we going to take to Peru. And so they were, they were very um, focused on the ministry of God. They really felt God had called them to and on preparation for that ministry. 
Yeah, really remarkable. One of the things that I appreciated about your telling of their story was the love that they had for one another uh, that continued through the remainder of their lives together. They both passed away in their 80s. And their love for each other as they had served in ministry, their connection to one another was really admirable. Um, and I thought the, the title of the book, in addition to pointing to their love for ministry and people and serving God, their love for one another was evident as well. Well, um, Luis Palau told the story that there at his crusade down in, in Lima in 2004, and he he was he had brought them down to honor them during this crusade. So they were there, and, and they walk on the stage holding hands, and and um, and Luis says, "You really love that woman, don't you?" <laughs> he said, "When you don't have any children, you can just pour all your love on her." And it was it was true. They just they had this this unceasing deep love for one another and appreciation for one another. Yes. You write of them, Bert and Colleen serve as the right kind of examples of average followers of Jesus, proving that for most of us, substantial supernatural impact is achieved through simple daily faithfulness, listening to Jesus and loving people in his name. And that's an apt description of what they did serving as missionaries in Peru. I noted that um, they honeymooned in in Peru in anticipation of missionary work there. There were stories on boats and planes and trains, uh, just doing the work of ministry. Tell us a little bit about the the work they did in establishing a significant number, I believe, 150 plus churches in Peru, uh, serving there for the the bulk of each of their lives. So they started out in the jungle in in Lagunas. They started on a, on the jungle there. And they they just developed an itinerant um, ministry. And they, they they got a jungle boat, and the jungle didn't have at that time didn't have roads. You know, the road was the river, and they would go on this river, and they'd go up up river or down river, and they'd be gone for two or three or four weeks at a time, and they'd stop at these little villages, and first thing in the morning they'd have their devotions, they'd have time of prayer, they'd have breakfast, and then it was. The boat was open, and and um, the nationals would come in, and Colleen would give them, would use her medical training to do all kinds of things: give shots, deliver babies, um, pull not pull teeth. Uncle Bert would pull the teeth, but she would, and she would, um, you know, pull it, fix a bullet wound, or or a night a snake bite, or treat malaria, all those kinds of things. And Uncle Bert would pull teeth. By the thousands, and then they they do that in the morning, and then in the afternoon they'd visit people in the in the village and a little church there, and then at night they they would um, they'd have open air meetings either in the in the little building the church might have, and they'd have two or three um, people would come to know Christ, and then they leave them a Bible and a couple songs by memory, and they go to the next village and next, and they would every three months or six months they'd come back and visit those little villages. And they would slowly develop churches, and of course it was slow, and at times it was discouraging. And you go in and you find out that, you know, one of the one of the elders had had um, fallen into sin, and they'd have to discipline, and they just slowly um, develop these little these little churches. So the one who really stepped in and took their place down there, Pablo Sinepitoris, who was Peruvian and lived with them during his high school years, and 
incidentally, Aunt Colleen had delivered when he was a baby. Mm-hmm. He recently told me he was back in the jungle, one of those villages, and there's an 82-year-old lady there who came back to Christ in their meetings, and she had originally been baptized by Bert years ago, fallen away, come back to Christ, and then in the same meetings, her daughter came to the Lord, too. So they're, the, the impact of their ministry is continuing on even to this day. So that's, they start out, for the first group portion of time, they're in the jungle. They came home after, after six years um, for a furlough, and on the way home, they saw Jim and Elizabeth um, in Ecuador on the way home, and that was right before Jim was killed. And when they went back there, they were motivated by his death to say, we need to expand our ministry. And by happenstance and God's providence, they, they visited one of the mountain cities, fell in love with the mountain people, and then with the coastal people. And so from then on, they would spend about half a year in in the jungle, and they'd have spend half a year up in the mountains on the coast just doing the same thing, going to these little villages, getting to know them, walking you know, five or six hours to get into a village, staying overnight, having meetings, and then going back out, and then slowly developing this ministry um, of just church planting and church planting and church planting. Yeah. So we need to take a quick break. But I'll... Is, the 150 is not their number. They would never, they could, they would never give a number to it. But as far as we can estimate, that's about that's how many about right. We're going to take yes. a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. The okay. word that comes to mind when I think about this couple is faithfulness and perseverance, persistence. Quick break. We'll be back to continue our conversation with Gilbert Gleason. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Gilbert Gleason. He's the author of Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott, Bert being the brother of Jim Elliott. Uh, the two of them being similar in some ways, dissimilar in others, but both faithful servants of the Lord. In his forward to the book, Randy Alcorn writes of Bert Elliott, he wasn't a sprinter who wins the Olympic gold medal. He was like the clerk or custodian who jogs nine-minute mile, three miles a day, uh, and over his lifetime runs much farther than the pro who retires at 30. Bert and Colleen just kept serving faithfully and joyfully for 62 years, a long obedience in the same direction, years of dying daily to self and living moment by moment for Jesus for an audience of one. It is a beautiful story, beautifully told in Love So Amazing. And again, if you're looking for a gift idea that's inspiring and challenging, I know I found myself really thinking about, Lord, am I, am I living up to all that you've called me to? And there are times when you just cry, <laughs> just everything. Uh, I went through all the, the full range, uh, in the book. So just, um, a great resource. Uh, we've been talking about the fact that they um, ministered for a very long period of time, established churches in Peru uh, throughout the 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 um, uh, their ministry. Uh, they were recognized by Luis Palau. In fact, there was a festival in Lima, Peru, uh, that Luis Palau invited them to be special guests of, which was an unusual situation for them. They really weren't identified as movers and shakers in missions or in ministry. And yet, as they sat there at that event, they thought about the history of Peru that would never have allowed that kind of gathering years before in the 50s, I think. Uh, this was really quite a uh, an occasion in which they were recognized, but they also recognized what God had done over the course of their many years in ministry. And that was, it was a significant and very meaningful time for them as they 
as they looked and just saw the changes that God was making and the doors that were open. They had a real special appreciation for Luis and for his ministry mm-hmm. and a friendship there. It's interesting that they said to me, he said, you know, he, he's known around the world for all his big festivals and campaigns. He said the difference he made in our ministry was not the campaigns. It was his radio ministry, because we take these little radios in these little villages and turn them on and people could listen to him as he counseled people. And he said his radio ministry was much more impactful in our in relation to our ministry than his big campaigns. Yeah, and it was sweet to see the relationship that they had, how they encouraged one another uh, throughout. Now, I can imagine as the the couple were aging, moving around in an area that's not well-developed had to become a challenge, yet they continued to minister clear into their 80s. And that's one of the reasons they left the jungle, because the jungle going up and down those those river banks and all of that could be very awkward and difficult as as you aged and but and in their later years so they went to, they moved to Trujillo um in 18 in 1989 they moved to, to Trujillo which was much more of a of a stay in one place lifestyle but they continued to have people coming into their house day after day after day people living with them that was when they started at a school and that it was never in their dream to start a school and he went down to Argentina, and they saw the, the Christian schools, the, how effective they were down there, and ministering to people. And he came back and said, can we do that here? And he ended up, and he was, he, as a young man, he's a guy that struggled with education. In fact, Western Seminary gave him an honorary doctorate at the end of his life. And, somebody, mm-hmm. and he got teased a lot about it because it was hard enough for him to get through school. And then he walks out with his honorary doctorate at the end. But, but um, just to see the ability for him to look at oper- and for them to look at opportunities and to see the Lord opening up doors that they never would have thought about. And that, that continued their heart to minister, to serve continued through the remainder of their lives together. It's really quite remarkable. There was no thought of retirement and we're going to do something else. They served the Lord faithfully in ways that, that were uh, consistent with their ability but they were faithful to the very end. And and so so and I went down to visit them near the end of their life and and they would have people come in and they would pray with people and they would they would encourage people. They'd come in for me he taught in the Bible classes at the end. And so he was he quit preaching a year or two before he passed away. But until then they were active and she was leading Bible studies and and yes, they they went up to the end. They they didn't know what the word retirement meant. Yeah, yeah. I like the uh, toward the end of the book. You have a, a chapter on finishing well, and you write about um, Jim and uh, Bert Elliott and how, as brothers, they were similar, but they were quite different. And I appreciated that you made the comparison to James and John, brothers uh, who were disciples of Jesus. Can you talk a little bit about these two brothers? One who's very well known and might be related to the idea of the son of thunder, and then his brother Bert, who over a very long period of time uh, served faithfully in Peru. So that's an analogy that I heard Bert speak on several times um, to groups, and he would compare his his life and Jim's life with that of, of James and John. Of of the They were both sons of thunder. One of them, and, and for John, or for James, early on, it got him in trouble, and he ended up being beheaded. And and um, but when you look at that, and you look at the the shortness of James's life, was just like his brother Jim, 
and the length of, of Bert's life. And at the end, if you look at the life of John, his reputation is used, he was an apostle of love. And I see that in Bert, that he was an apostle of love and he gave, he had that love. And so I would take it, I took it beyond his, his mm-hmm. analysis, just the length. And I said, you know, their, their personalities compared it to James and to John and just the, the faithful and the, the, the sacrificial obedience that both of them experienced. Jim's favorite or famous quote was, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And my question is, because we always think of that in terms of Jim's life and the shortness of his life. But my question is, is that saying as true for the lifelong lived as it was for the young martyr? And I say, yes, it was. And Bert's life and Colleen's life demonstrate that both of them live lives of sacrificial obedience. And Jim's was much more spectacular in terms of the, of the death of him and his four friends and, and be, made worldwide news and all that type of thing and, and motivated people to get into ministry, people going to mission field. And yet Bert's life is, is just as impactful and, mm-hmm. and, and, and over a, a period of 62 years under the radar where almost nobody knew who they were except for those that they're ministering to there on the field. It really is a remarkable story. And as I mentioned earlier, I found it really challenging uh, to consider the tremendous sacrifice and uh, level of obedience that they demonstrated throughout their life of ministry. And I asked the Lord to, to reveal to me, am I, am I living up to what you, uh, you want me to do as well? As I mentioned earlier in our conversation, they were inseparable in life, Colleen and Bert um, Elliot. They were also, in a sense, inseparable in death. Um, when Bert died, uh, it was expected. She died shortly thereafter. Um, again, just it seemed appropriate that one would follow so closely after the other. And, and it's, it's. Uh, I find in ministry it's not that unusual that a mm-hmm. that a couple, you know, got a grief and just you know they die. But hers was so different in that. Um, Bert died in, in February of, of 2012, and I was down there um, shortly before he passed away. And I sat down with that Colleen, and I said, "You know, when when this when he passes away, and everybody you know is expected except for a miracle." And, and I said, "When that happens, we want to have a service in Portland, and we'd love to have you come up for the service." So we sat down, and she and I planned her, his service together. So you know, these are the songs that I want sung, and. And she said, Gilbert, I'd like you to give the message. So we kind of put it all together. And then I came home, and then he passed away. And so we set the time for six months, six weeks later to the day, of, um, or, or six weeks later one day, for the services. So she came home. She said, yes, I'll come home. She came home. She went to, to Wheaton with her sister-in-law, and then she came to Portland. And, um, and she was scheduled, I think she was scheduled to be on your show at that time. Because she arrived on a Wednesday night, and the funeral was going to be on Saturday, and I and I think she had been scheduled to do an interview with you during that time, and yes, and um, and and she came home on she visited some friends on Thursday. She came home, she started walk up the steps to our house, and she fell down and fell backwards, and she had a brain concussion, and we rushed her to the hospital. She was on on blood thinner at that point because of um, because she had had a um, a blood clot. And, and by the middle of the night, you know, it was obvious they, they couldn't stop the bleeding. And, they, you know, they just said, 
you know, she's she's going to be a vegetable if you. So we made the decision to take her off life support. That was early Friday morning. Mm-hmm. By Friday afternoon, she had passed away. And I was ready for Uncle Bert's death because it was expected. But personally, I really struggled with Aunt yes. Colleen's death because I had expected her. She was always my corner. And I didn't, you know, I, I knew I had the strength to do the service or she was on the front row. And I realized she wasn't going to be there. And it was just, it was a very difficult uh, short period where I had to talk with the Lord and said, Lord, you've got to help me through this to be able to do yes. both their services. So Saturday morning, we had a service, and, and Louise Plow graciously came over and and um, gave remembrances. But the first thing I had to do was stand up, begin a service, and say, um, all of you know you're here because Bert passed away, and some of you may not know, and some of them didn't know that Aunt Colleen has passed away, and we did a, a joint memorial service. One of the missionaries that that had served with them down there had made the comment. She said, you know, when I heard that Uncle Bert passed away, I couldn't believe, I couldn't imagine Aunt Colleen going on without him. <laughs> yeah. And then and then when she heard Aunt Colleen pass away, she says, I guess God could imagine that either. And brought her home, and it took her home in a very dramatic way. I mean, yes. so totally unexpected. And so we had her body sent back to Peru, and they're, they're laying side by side um, in, a, in a funeral, in a graveyard not just outside of of Trujillo, and I, I'm hoping to go down next month, and, and I'll be able to see their, where they're buried down there. But yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a dramatic story. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, it is a sweet story, and I hope our listeners will read Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott. Where can our listeners find the book? The easiest place to do it is, is just look on gilbertgleason.com, and that's my website, and it talks about the book. You can order it right there. For you Portlanders, Gleason is spelled G-L-E-A-S-O-N. <laughs> not, not like yeah, not the street. street but <laughs> I not will like put street, a, but... I'll put a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook okay. page so okay. folks can check it out. Thank you so much. You know, and Georgine, for your readers, if if they, tomorrow morning, if they want to order tomorrow morning, I'll put a special 20% discount on their KBDQ21. Put that in a discount code, KPDQ21. And there'll be a 20% discount between now and Christmas Day. Excellent. I will make sure that information is there. Thank you so much, and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you. God bless you. Bye. we got to take a break for news and traffic. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. If you didn't have the opportunity to hear my conversation with Gilbert Gleason, Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott, check it out on our podcast. What an amazing couple and what a great book. Uh, you can find that at kpdq.com. Go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook or the Georgine Rice Show um, uh what do you even call it? You just go to the Georgine Rice Show and there you can find more about the podcast. Um, anyway, great, uh, great book written by a local author who happens to be related to Bert and Colleen Elliott. Bert Elliott being the brother of Jim Elliott, much um, more widely known by many. And yet his brother Bert has an amazing testimony along with his wife, Colleen. Check that out at kpdq.com. Well, President Biden announced that health insurers have to cover 100 percent of the cost of in-home COVID-19 tests 
as part of his winter plan to combat the pandemic. The president announced his health insurance must cover 100 percent of the cost of at-home a test purchased by the members, a senior administration official said of the president's planned announcement. The move will come as part of the president's winter plan to combat COVID-19 as fears grow over the spread of the Omicron variant with U.S. recording two cases of the new strain, one yesterday, another today. Well, other measures the president announced include increased access to vaccine boosters, Uh, Launching more family vaccination clinics in an effort to get more kids vaccinated, distributing 50 million free tests throughout the country and a requirement that all international travelers show a negative test one day before departure. And we're going to continue to act, the president said, aggressively. We will continue to follow the science. We will continue to prepare for all scenarios and work day and night to protect the American people, keep our schools open, keep our economy growing and get this pandemic behind us. Uh, the president uh, also called on businesses to voluntarily implement a vaccine mandate as part of his announcement. What we're doing is what we've done all along, which is uh, we're asking businesses to step forward and do the right thing to protect our workers. Now, many businesses don't see it quite that way. He went on to suggest that this would be a way to protect our community, to put in place some some uh, sort of vaccine requirement or testing requirements for the workplace. Now, a senior um, administration official said, we know they work and we think it's in the best interest of the public. As you know, the president's mandates have been challenged by a number of states. And uh, in some cases, in some regions, they have been rejected by the courts altogether. A final decision that would impact um, the, the nation from border to border has yet to be made. But it seems at this point that the courts are not likely to support um, OSHA imposing these mandates instituted by the president. While the debt limit has been removed from most people's focus, it's one of the best tools to ensure a limited government that doesn't burden Americans and sap our economic vitality. Now, as you probably know, the debt limit was uh, lifted until later this month. Well, that date is fastly approaching. When the debt limit was suspended in July of 2019 through the to July of 2021, few could have known that more than five trillion dollars of new coronavirus pandemic era debt would sneak in during that suspension. Yet we knew the American people were being exposed potentially to an unlimited increase in the debt. Now, this two-year absence of the debt limit has enabled a tremendous expansion of the federal government and likely added significant, uh, significantly rather, to the current inflationary pressures. The ramifications of another quick and reckless abuse of the debt limit could have grave consequences, and they're about to decide on that in the short term. Well, lurking in the shadows of the president's so-called Build Back Better bill debate is the fast approaching debt limit. In fact, we're already there. The Treasury Department is again quietly employing extraordinary measures to finance federal deficits. With the president having signed a $1.2 trillion spending bill into law, Congress will likely be expected to vote again on the debt limit before the end of the year. In fact, Treasury thinks extraordinary measures are likely to be exhausted by December 15th. Without a dramatic increase in the debt limit, plans for radically expanding the size and scope of the federal government can't come into effect. It's vital that we remember the power of the debt limit to prevent these abuses and to defend the rights of the American people, all Americans, to the fruits of their own labors. Well, Build Back Better would, uh, if realistically implemented, call for perhaps $4.6 trillion in new spending and tax credits over a decade, despite the 
uh, number that's attached to its title. Uh, much of which would be uh, wealth redistribution from hardworking Americans to politically connected corporations and individuals, including the media, by the way. Well, Biden's plan would build back for a few and with someone else's money, specifically, well, yours, uh, pulling this much money out of the economy and redistributing it uh, in an arbitrary and inefficient manner will only exacerbate the current supply chain crisis and inflationary trend. But that's the direction we're headed in that legislation. Well, all federal government spending is unavoidably at the expense of the American people. That's why our Constitution narrowly defines federal taxing power and why we have the debt limit, among many other fiscal controls and rules. Now, make no mistake, all government spending is a form of wealth redistribution. Distribution first from all Americans to the government and then through the projects and favoritism of the government to a handful of people and entities. Regardless of what politicians and bureaucrats do with the money afterward, all government funding is first acquired by destructively pulling it out of the economy. Now, President Biden and the left, they've tried to keep the debt limit out of the spotlight. They routinely paint the debt limit as an arcane obstacle to its plans, as though it's merely some vestige of a bygone era. Now, you may even have uh, read about some seemingly ludicrous ideas, such as minting a trillion dollar coin to avoid the debt limit, effectively doubling down on devaluing our currency. However, all these distractions intentionally obscure the true purpose of the debt limit. It's a promise to the American people that the government will not endlessly take more of what they earn and produce. The debt limit isn't an external limitation, such as a credit limit a bank puts on your credit card. The debt limit is one of the tools the American people have to help safeguard us from an abusively large federal government. Federal deficits are typically financed by drawing capital out of the private sector, leading to reduced investment in economic growth and opportunity, thereby creating burdens on all Americans. Now, while the president might point to a list of goodies in the Build Back Better bill, it comes with destruction of broader economic opportunity. There's another way to finance federal debt, namely printing money. As ludicrous as that may sound, roughly 55 percent of new federal debt since the start of the pandemic has been financed that way, just simply printing more, pumping new money into the economy. The Federal Reserve has purchased roughly three trillion dollars of new federal debt just to try to keep up with the federal government's pandemic bar tab, which so far uh, added five point five trillion dollars to the debt since the start of the pandemic. Well, that's uh, roughly forty three thousand dollars per household, including yours. We're now in uncharted territory. The Fed has increased the money supply by increasing its asset holdings by more than $7.6 trillion in just 13 years. It's not clear how much of the recent inflationary trend comes from this large increase in the money supply or the rampant federal deficit spending it finances. That's exactly what the debt limit and other fiscally responsible rules can prevent. Now, without these limits, the federal government could easily hold a blank check with your name on it. That's the very definition of unlimited government, the opposite of what we're supposed to be living with. Well, such a powerful and ever expanding government stifles uh, more than our economic prosperity. It represents an assault on the basic freedoms that lay at the foundation of our society. It is foundational. It is fundamental. Well, as the end of the year fast approaches, don't ignore the next push to simply wave off the debt limit. The debt limit may seem like congressional fine print. It's uh, the fine print Biden and the central planners don't want you to read. We need to remember that the debt limit is one of our indispensable tools to ensure a rights respecting and properly limited government.
Uh, it's an amazing republic if one can keep it. We're going to take a break in just a moment. When we come back, we're going to talk about Representative Kevin Brady. He says this is not only the largest spending bill, but the largest tax hikes we've seen in our lifetime. Once again, referring to the Build Back Better Act. $1.75 trillion, that's what we're being told it will cost, but... The CBO says, well, not so fast. It's going to be significantly more than that over the decade. We'll get into that and more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, prior to the House's passage of President Biden's $1.75 trillion Build Back Better Act, Representative Kevin Brady says businesses that... um, Uh, said that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy hours long speech had two objectives. One was to protest the process where you have the largest spending bill in American history that was written in secret, that no one really knows what's in it. And now that the results are in, we know that it adds hundreds of billions of dollars to the national debt, even counting the budget gimmick. But the true cost to the nation and the national debt over the decades is more than more closer, I should say. You don't really say more closer. It's one or the other. It's redundant. Closer to three trillion dollars, the congressman said. Secondly, pull the curtain back on what exactly is in it. And as the leader made clear, this bill is not paid for. It violates the president's pledge to not tax middle class Americans. It is a huge tax giveaway to the wealthy. Two out of three millionaires will receive a tax cut in this bill. And of course, this will drive inflation up even higher and longer on American families. Brady said, adding that the points McCarthy was making was exactly what the American people needed to hear. Sadly, most people weren't listening. American people needed to hear. Well, Brady said that Biden's claim that no one making $400,000 or less will pay higher taxes is nonsense. And we've seen the results. So both the Joint Committee on Taxation and the Liberal Tax Policy Center confirm that one out of every Three middle-class Americans will see a tax hike starting next year. That percentage will grow over time in a significant way. And again, that's in contrast to two out of three millionaires getting tax cuts, the congressman said. So, yeah, there's no question on small business people, on working families. All will see tax hikes. And then, as we learn more, we see things we've discovered, things like the toddler tax, where families who use child care, who make even a dollar more than $65,000 a year, a year rather, will see a huge increase in child care cost, more than $1,000 a month. It goes on and on. This is not only the largest spending bill, but the largest tax hikes that we've seen in our lifetime, he went on to say. Well, Brady warned that the bill is uh, filled with half a trillion dollars worth of green pork, also known as green welfare giveaways to the wealthy and the largest corporations. The fact that you are working hard as a single mom and you're spending twelve dollars, twelve and a half thousand thousand dollars, I should say, of your taxes to your wealthy neighbors so that they can buy a luxury electric vehicle is offensive, the congressman said. I mean, sending $450,000 to those who crossed our border illegally while we pay the survivors of Gold Star families, of of those who lost in the military, far less than that. When you see tax increases on small business and the paying people uh, more than stay home, uh, more to stay home to uh, uh, to work, stay home, then to reconnect to work, which is, by the way, experts believe uh, will drive about two million more Americans out of the workforce at a time we desperately need them on and on and on. He said again, quoting, it's an offensive bill. And I didn't mention at the very end, they snuck in tax breaks for wealthy trial lawyers, for recording artists, 
to, well, for the media to hire local reporters. It is uh, one of the most offensive tax giveaways for special interests uh, than uh, has ever been seen. And he went on from there. Now, one thing I wanted to park on for a moment, the Build Back Better um, Act offers media billions of dollars. Now, what can we expect from a media that is receiving billions of dollars from the government? What kind of reporting might we expect? Well, the constitutional protections that guaranteed in the First Amendment apply to all citizens. Everyone has freedom to practice religion as they see fit and to speak freely. Well, mostly it might come as a surprise to the media establishment and even government legislatures that legislators rather that the First Amendment protection for freedom of the press also applies to all Americans. Basically, every American is a member of the press, if you will. Well, when government bestows special status and privileges to journalists that aren't provided for all citizens, the nation enters the dangerous realm of press exceptionalism. Well, that's the notion that journalists play such a unique role in American democracy or republic anyway, that they need to be on pedestals. The problem is that journalists can't be surrogates of rank-and-file Americans when they're being bought off and compromised by government entities privileged, um, privileging rather the, um, uh, the uh, class of journalists. Well, the journalism industry is being made part of the establishment by an increasing flow of government enticements. The Biden administration's Local Journalism Sustainability Act, it's part of BBB, is part of the Build Back Better package. It's working its way through Congress now. The bill helps fund payroll expenses of news outlets and generates revenue for those outlets by giving tax incentives to advertisers and subscribers. Now, this ill-conceived legislation is supercharged press exceptionalism that will make the uh, teeth out of the uh, the press historic watchdog role. That will simply dissipate over time. The news industry does have financial challenges and media executives should well figure out how to keep their failing operations out of red ink. But that's not the issue here. The issue is how a watchdog press can aggressively hold the government accountable when it's being soothed and distracted by government um, doggy treats, if you will. News coverage of um, the Biden spending package is now necessarily compromised since news organizations stand to benefit from its passage. Journalists and politicians have historically they've um, kept an arm's length and at times adversarial relationship and rightly so. Journalism executives should recognize government handouts for precisely what they are attempts to maneuver and manipulate press sympathies to the government's Advantage. Now, it may seem like a great idea as long as the people you like are in Washington or, for that matter, uh, in other roles of government. But uh, once the uh, the shoe is on the other foot, it might seem a bit more dangerous than you originally imagined. And yet that is part of the Build Back Better Act. Well, a Texas uh, social media law designed to curb political censorship violated tech platforms First Amendment rights, according to a federal court on Wednesday. Judge Robert Pittman of the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Texas issued a preliminary injunction blocking House Bill 20 signed into law by Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican in early September, and declared it unconstitutional. Now, the law prohibited social media platforms from banning, suspending or taking similar adverse actions against users based on their political viewpoint. And it similarly prevented platforms from politically motivated removal of content. 
Well, in addition, the law set up a complaint system for users claiming censorship and allowed the state attorney general to sue on an allegedly censored user's behalf. Well, the court found that the law violated social media companies' First Amendment rights because the social media companies reserve the right to violate your First Amendment rights to remove content on their platforms. Social media platforms have a First Amendment right, the judge, uh, Judge Pittman wrote, um, to moderate content disseminated on their platforms. Private companies, and they are private, that use editorial judgment to choose whether to publish content, and if they do publish content, use editorial judgment to choose what they want to publish, cannot be compelled by the government to publish other content. Well, Pittman also said it was in the interest of users to allow social media companies to censor content in order to promote platform safety. Well, House Bill 20's prohibitions on censorship and constraints rather on how social media platforms disseminate content violate the First Amendment. The judge went on to write content moderation and curation will benefit users and the public by reducing harmful content and providing a safe and useful service. Well, he's giving uh these platforms, the benefit of the doubt that they are removing content in the general best interest of the general public, when in fact, it's much more selective and exclusive than that. Well, the ruling comes in response to a lawsuit filed by tech industry groups, NetChoice and the Computer and Communications Industry Association, who represent some of the largest tech companies, including Google, Meta, formerly Facebook and Amazon. America's judicial system protected our constitutional right to free speech today by ensuring the politically motivated Texas law does not see the light of day and force Americans everywhere to endure racial epithets. Aggressive homophobia, pornographic material, beheadings and other gruesome content just to scroll online. Well, of course, the the legislation was not designed to allow that kind of content. What they were trying to uh, prevent was viewpoint discrimination where a conservative point of view was excluded because it was conservative or religious. And the list went on. Well, in other news, as the U.S. Senate debates the National Defense Authorization Act this week, and finally they're debating the act, a proposal to mandate that women register for the draft has received increasing pushback from the American people. Well, in the last eight weeks, Family Research Council facilitated nearly 200,000 messages to Congress opposing the uh, mandate. The message the uh, Family Research Council supporters are sending is clear. They want their representatives to oppose the NDAA unless this mandate is removed. They understand the repercussions of this change and should it become law, oppose it. Lieutenant General William Boykin, Family Research Council's executive vice president, made a a statement saying this family research council honors our service women women serve with great honor and distinction however they should not be forced into frontline infantry armor special forces etc combat mandating that women register for the draft would be detrimental to our military women in frontline combat have a higher likelihood of injury leading to non-deployability and compromising the lethality re- uh, readiness and cohesion of certain frontline combat units studies and research by both the army and marines have borne this out. While some women are able to meet the demands of frontline combat, the physical differences between men and women cannot be ignored. Unless, of course, you're an athlete and happen to be a woman. Fewer women than men can meet these demands and the random nature and the lowered fitness examination parameters of the draft are insufficient to ensure that only such highly qualified women would be selected for frontline combat roles. So as the um, 
Uh, National Defense Authorization Act is being reviewed. Keep your ears poised on how they address that issue, and we'll certainly continue to report on it as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, New York City has opened the nation's first government-sanctioned drug injection site uh, to help address the drug overdose crisis there, exacerbated by the economic and social disruption of a prolonged pandemic. New York City opened two supervised injection sites in Manhattan on Tuesday to provide users a controlled environment for drug use as well as treatment options. Now, these are illicit drugs and yet government-sanctioned injection sites. Well, sanctioned in the neighborhoods, or rather stationed in the neighborhoods of East Harlem and Washington Heights, the sites will offer clean injection supplies such as needles, uh, naloxone, uh, an emergency drug that reverses narcotic overdose, and addiction treatment. City health officials told the New York Times visitors have to bring their own drugs, so they're not providing the drugs, just everything you need to administer them. Well, critics of the facilities argue that they legitimize, destigmatize, and therefore encourage drug use rather than uh, do anything constructive to mitigate the drug epidemic. Cities like San Francisco and Seattle, both ravaged by substance abuse, have considered opening injection locations as well. New York City is the first to formally authorize such sites. 2020, unfortunately, according to the uh, New York City Health Commissioner, Dr. Dave Chokshi, uh, speaking to the Times, was the deadliest year on record for overdoses both here and in New York City, as well as nationally. Uh, every four hours, someone dies of a drug overdose in New York City. Um, I, we feel a deep conviction and also sense of urgency in opening overdose prevention centers. It is uh, perhaps the last resort, but it is sad to consider that we've gotten to that point. Well, the launch of the twin injection sites in the city coincides with the expiration of Mayor Bill de Blasio's last term, which will be succeeded by former Manhattan police chief and Democrat mayor-elect Eric Adams. The project is a bold exit from uh, for de Blasio, who's been pushing for so-called harm reduction strategies, such as supervised injection sites since 2018. It's a unique strategy, and whether or not it stands under the new leadership remains to be seen. Well, the decision has received the backing of the majority of the city district attorney, um, attorneys, plural, with the exception of the Staten Island district attorney, Michael McMahon, uh, who presides over a more conservative borough, according to the Times. We've always been trying to strike the right balance between enforcement, rehabilitation and prevention. Cyrus Vance, Jr., The Manhattan district attorney told the publication, I would rather have people who are going to shoot up, do it in a safe and secure venue. Isn't that sort of an oxymoron? They're shooting up in a safe way as opposed to a McDonald's bathroom, an alleyway or a subway staircase. Now, my guess is my guess is that will continue. Uh, The proposal for the injection centers comes with a record surge in drug overdose fatalities of over 100,000 between April of last year and April of this year according to the National Center for Health Statistics. The estimated 100,306 deaths during this window represents a 29% increase from the estimated 78,056 overdose deaths during the same period last year, according to the Centers for Disease Control. 
Well, elections have consequences. We all know that, but sometimes we underestimate the consequence elections might have. Many of these consequences are obvious, but not all. Some come in the form of less noticed changes in federal government agencies that most Americans rarely think about. Yet the actions of these agencies can have wide-reaching impact, touching the lives of average citizens all across the country. Well, the Department of Health and Human Services expected... um, Move to rescind a religious freedom safeguard implemented by the Bush administration, excuse me, the Trump administration, is the latest example of the damage that can be done. Well, in the past, under Democratic administrations, HHS earned an unfortunate reputation for antagonizing religious organizations. One example, under the Obama administration, HHS targeted groups like the Little Sisters of the Poor by compelling them to pay for contraceptives in their insurance coverage, something that goes against their uh, faith. Well, thankfully, the Trump administration worked to make clear existing federal laws protecting religious freedom would be vigorously enforced. One way they did this was by creating a conscience and religious freedom division in HHS Office of Civil Rights to ensure that the many federal laws protecting conscience, about 25 are already on the books, were enforced. So they're already on the books, but enforcing them was the question. Well, OCR, the Office of Civil Rights, was also given authority to review violations of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act or the First Amendment, which protect the religious liberty of Americans. In one case, they took action against a Vermont medical center for forcing a nurse to assist in an abortion against her conscience, a case that President Biden dropped after taking power. Yet the very purpose of the Civil Rights Division is to ensure that its programs comply with all applicable civil rights and conscience and religious freedom protections. Aside from simply not enforcing the law, the administration is now seeking to revoke the authority of the conscience and religious freedom division. And the the uh, Civil Rights Division, the Office of Civil Rights, to police how HHS protests, or, or I should say protect, but maybe protest is the right word, or doesn't protect religious freedom. Uh, the President uh, Trump's uh, civil Rights Director for the Office of Civil Rights, Roger Severino, saw the systematic assault on religious freedom under the Obama administration and set out to ensure that this could not happen again. Well, again, we're talking about laws that are already on the book. This is um, enforcement. He didn't want to see that happen again. He was instrumental in building out the uh, OCR's role in protecting religious freedom at the agency and in establishing the Conscience and Religious Freedom Division. Now a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Severino joined Washington Watch uh, to react to the administration's attempt to roll back this uh, protection. Well, Severino described his division's role as the watchdog specific to religious freedom within HHS. And he explained, just like every other civil right, uh, we stood up to uh, a, a conscience and religious freedom division with career professionals to police this right. The Biden administration officials are trying to shut this down and reverse it by stripping it of all their authority. And it's shameful, end quote. Well, notably, the current Secretary of Health and Human Services, Xavier Bacara pledged to in his Senate confirmation hearing that he would not do this. The very thing that he is doing, promising that he valued religious freedom and would not change the way the OCR enforced the religious freedom protections within the agency. It certainly now looks like the uh, like he lied about this. And if you know anything about his history and in uh, relationship to religious freedom, this is no surprise Well, this is hardly the first time he's uh, proven himself hostile to religious freedom. 
As Severino pointed out, he was my main antagonist when I was enforcing conscience laws. We found him to be the one responsible for violating the rights of pro-life pregnancy resource centers and also requiring universal abortion coverage, again, for nuns. And now he's the fox guarding the hen house. This is nothing more than retaliation against the same office that found him to be responsible for conscience violations. Well, under the Trump administration, HHS went after Bacara for violating the Weldon Amendment, the federal law protecting health care entities who don't want to cover abortion from being retaliated against by the government. HHS also acted against Bacara for trying to force pregnancy resource centers to post pro-abortion signs against their conscience. Plural. With a history like that, it's no wonder that he would uh, seek to upend the division that caught him violating religious freedom protections. It was personal, but beyond that, it's consistent with, with the view that he has upheld throughout his career. Well, let's not forget that revoking the ability for the conscience division and the uh, uh, Office of Civil Rights to enforce religious freedom protection will hurt people. More HHS mandates that contradict Americans' consciences and First Amendment freedoms will make their way out of the agency. This is harmful for everyone, for citizens, for religious institutions, and for Americans' constitutional rights. Well, the structure and duties of federal government agencies matters, and the people that the president places in these roles matter as well. It's one of the many effects of elections that go largely unseen until they harm someone like Catholic nuns who don't simply want to fund contraception in violation of their conscience. Well, the importance of elections is on full display at HHS right now as the administration seeks to undo the good work of the previous uh, agency, Health and Human Services, and the previous administration. Well, interestingly enough, Nigeria has been removed and Russia added to the U.S. State Department's religious persecution list. Now, there's not much question about Russia being added, but Nigeria being removed, that's another matter. Well, the U.S. State Department has added Russia to its list of nations it considers among the world's most egregious violators of religious freedom. It joins Myanmar, referred to as Burma, on the list, China, Eritrea, Iran, North Korea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan on the 2021 list of countries of particular concern. Well, the most controversial change, however, is Nigeria, which was finally added to the top CPC list last year. It's no longer included. Nor is the troubled West African nation listed on the second tier special watch list where Russia had been listed in 2020. Meanwhile, Algeria was added to the watch list, joining joining, um, Comoros, Cuba, uh, Nicaragua, which were also listed last year. In far too many places around the world, we continue to see governments harass, arrest, threaten, jail and kill individuals simply for seeking to live their lives in accordance with their beliefs. That's a quote from Secretary of State. Anthony Blinken on Wednesday in an announcement. This administration is committed to supporting every individual's right to freedom of religion or belief, including by confronting and combating violators and abusers of this human right. The challenge to religious freedom in the world today are structural, systematic and deeply entrenched. They exist in every country, Blinken said. They demand sustained global commitment from all who are unwilling to accept hatred, intolerance and persecution as the status quo. We will continue to press all governments to remedy shortcomings in their laws and practices and to promote accountability for those responsible for the abuses. Now, sadly, um, the addition of Russia meant the uh, expulsion of Nigeria. 
which had been on the list for quite some time. It is a curious um, omission. Now, Nigeria is a problem uh, in that uh, in the regard because it's a nation roughly split in half, both geographically and by population between Christian and Muslim. Muslims tend to inhabit the inland northern half of Nigeria, while Christians congregate closer to the southern coast. Also, while the Nigerian constitution guarantees a secular nation, a few states in the north have openly adopted Islamic Sharia law within their borders. And while we're reminded um, uh, that the Trump administration also found Nigerian violence to be a tough nut to crack, um, we were warned the Obama era uh, retreads are poised to populate uh, the administrate the current administration and perhaps to ignore what's happening there. One substantive change by the Trump administration made mostly at the behest of then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was declaring Nigeria one of 10 countries of particular concern. That was late last year. But since the announcement came out in the transitional period between 2020, the election and the installation of the Biden regime, the ball was firmly in the latter's court as to whether Nigeria or any other nation would remain on that list this year. As it turns out, the new CPC roster of nations remains at 10. Nigeria has been bumped from the list and replaced by Russia. There's no question Russia is a bad actor, but the list could have been expanded to maintain Nigeria. There's no magic in the number 10. It should have uh, continued, uh, should have remained on that list. We need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, of course, this is the first week of Advent, and we've been uh, commenting on that fact here since the 1st of December. And I wanted to continue today an Advent reading for the 2nd of December that focuses on Christ's return and eternal reign. And in doing so, focusing on Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through chapter 22, verse 5. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of every of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. It measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. A cube, if you will. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone, The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh um, chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. Hmm. 
The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine, to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is the lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. When the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face. Think about that for a moment. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever and ever. Now imagine a city filled with light. Imagine it like a brilliant crystalline jewel, the light reflected in all precious stones of many colors listed in the verses. Imagine, if you can, the way the light shines through the transparent gold of which the city is made. Get a view of the city from a distance. It stands atop a mountain and shines out over all the surrounding country. It is the sunlight of that world. It is the light by which people live. Think of a stained glass window in a church with a vivid depiction of biblical and other figures. The window itself is beautiful enough all of the time, but when the sun shines through it, it glows. Its intense colors light up. And the new Jerusalem, the loveliness of all God's creatures, all uh, will be a delight for all. We shall see them in their true colors. The light of God's immediate presence will not cancel out their shapes and colors, their created reality, but it will light them up and transfigure them. All through the Bible, light is a symbol of God and of Jesus, who said, I am the light of the world in John 8, verse 12. Think about the way God's light shines already into our lives in this world, how it lightens, uh, lights up our lives, how you can walk in that light. If you see the light now, it will light up the path that we can walk to the city of light. We can take with us to, um, to the place where God ultimately has for us. Richard Bauckham, a senior scholar at Ridley Hall in Cambridge, who's the author of many books, suggested that as we consider Advent, we don't just uh, think about the first coming of Jesus and what he accomplished in fulfilling God's promise, but consider the rest of the other half of that story, which is coming. It gives us hope and great comfort to know that this is not the end. We are living somewhere in the middle, but Christ is returning again, not as a babe in a manger, but as the Lord of glory, and we will live according to his light. What an amazing thing to consider in this first week of Advent.
Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to take a look at uh, some of the headline news. We'll also look at the lighter side of the news and we'll share this week's um, Christian Outlook. So I hope you will join us. Also want to remind you that uh, we are still giving you an opportunity to participate in the Christmas Mortgage Miracle. Imagine what you could do with the money you'd save if you didn't have to pay your rent or mortgage for a full year. It could happen if you enter the Christmas Mortgage Miracle with KPDQ from Osteo Strong PDX. You can enter once per day now through December 17th. Just click on the Christmas Mortgage Miracle at kpdq.com. Want to thank James Blend for producing and engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.